Greetings and welcome to another great week here on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Man, I am excited today. Now I know I'm always excited, but I'm excited for you, my listeners, because I know that today's guest and the topics that we are going to cover are so insightful, so relevant and so helpful to anyone, regardless of what stage or situation they currently are in, in their journey, their career, their business, their life. I'm also really excited because personally, my guest this week is someone that I've been wanting to meet for a long time, let alone have on the show. And the fact that he is the author of one of the very first books I read on mindset, spirituality, personal growth is just one of the awesome reasons I am so proud to share our conversation today. So my guest this week is Dan Millman. Now, if that name rings a bell, it is no wonder because he is the best-selling author of 18 books to date. And the one that I was referring to earlier in particular is the book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, right? It's a classic. It's been changing lives all over the world since its release decades ago and has been translated in 29 different languages. And if you haven't seen the book's film adaptation, feel free to pause the podcast, grab a notepad, and just write a reminder somewhere. It's a great film with Nick Nolte. Now, for those of you who have been following Dan's story for some time as I have, you'll know that he is a former world champion gymnast. He can still easily do awesome handstands, among other crazy things, right? Even though he's in his 70s, right? Pretty cool. He's also a former university coach, a martial arts instructor, a college professor. But these are titles, right? And, and we are really just scratching the surface in giving the world an idea of how profound this man's experience has been within his 20-year spiritual quest. And thanks to that, he now gets to share all of that collective wisdom to the world to get the benefit through his teaching, which has found his form of what he calls the peaceful warrior's way. So nowadays, he's devoted to speaking, keynotes, seminars, workshops that cover timeless and universal topics, you know, things that are transcending literally generations and touching people from all different walks of life. Now, I could go on and on and on sharing with you all the different things that Dan has done, but I'm going to stop myself here and let the interview do that. But here are some of the things that you can expect during our conversation today. Firstly, we talk about what sparked his journey and how it all started during a breakthrough moment in his young life. We also talk about mentorship, his take on mentorship and how he chose the many mentors that he has had throughout his life. He describes what spirituality is, how our psyche lives in different worlds and how our spirituality has changed as times have. Quite interesting there. We do go down the rabbit hole a bit. The arena of what I call the peaceful warrior is everyday life for all of us. He briefly but fondly shares his peaceful warrior four-minute workout and how this supports the philosophy of dreaming big but starting small. And of course, I wanted him to share some things about his latest book, which is called Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, which I have no doubt will become yet another bestseller. You know, it's already out now and you can go and get that, which is awesome. So I definitely suggest that you do that. Sometimes climbing out of a dark hole gives us the strength to climb the mountain. So in short, expect, you know, anything from a conversation from me, the crazy Australian and someone who can talk about all sorts of the different things from a broader range, meditation, knife fighting. Yeah, you heard that right. We can talk about all those things with Dan. So without further ado, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Dan Milner. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for another week. I'm delighted today to have a guest on the show. And I'm going to say this because I didn't mention actually before we joined, but the first book that I ever read on personal development was his book, 
And that book, which I've still got here, tattered, <laughs> literally, because it's a very old edition of it, is The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And my guest today is none other than, none other than Dan Millman. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. I'm really happy to be here with you on Scale Up. Yeah, Scale Up. The Scale Up show started as Scale Up Your Business. And then we started to get a lot of people wanting to learn about deeper levels of how do you scale up your life? You know, what does that mean in terms of your journey? So we get into all sorts of things on the show. So your, um, I suppose your life's mission is, is very well placed to be here. Well, yes, uh, I think so. It uh, certainly feels like a good fit. Good. Listen, I want to um, obviously talk about um, your new book, but which is behind me, actually, as you can see. But specifically, I'd like to kind of get into a little bit of your journey just to kind of get to understand you a bit more as well. Because, sure. you know, you've obviously your latest book talks a lot about everything that you've experienced. It talks about mentors. It's very much a memoir of your life. But if we go back to the very beginning to your first book, what was it that started your journey into wanting to, I suppose, learn a little bit, a little bit more about you and, and understand a little bit more about life in general? Well, you know, if I wanted to wax cosmic, I could begin before my birth, but I think I'd rather be a bit more conventional in my response. I don't mind. We can do anything you want here, Dan. <laughs> well, well uh, let's, rather than getting into the genetics and metaphysics of it, let's just begin with an incident that happened to me when I was about seven years old. Um, I loved to follow a friend around the streets. He and his friends were streetwise. They were three years older than I was, 10 years old. So they really knew the ropes. And so I'd follow them around. Um, his name was Steve, you saw, he was um, uh, an early mentor, let's say, and role model. And so this particular weekend, um, when the workers weren't there, there was a house under construction. I climbed up, we, we, we loved to climb up these houses and explore them. And we got up on the roof, of course, it was plywood at the time. And we looked down and about 20 feet below, uh, we saw a big sand pile. And of course, Steve saw it and leaped off and uh, followed by his 10 year old friends. But being only six or seven, I, I, you know, many people can relate to this. I really wanted to do this, but I was afraid. And so I went to the edge and I backed up and I went to the edge and I backed up and Steve was yelling encouragement from below. And finally he yelled something that I think shaped my young life and perhaps my whole life. He just yelled, Danny, just stop thinking and jump. And I realized a little light bulb went on. I realized I could do that. I could get to the edge. I could bend my knees. I could lean forward a bit and push. And I did. And I soared and I sunk up to my knees in the sand pile. And for the next hour, we continued to leap off the roof, climb up and leap off. But this idea of just stop thinking about it. And there's this saying in life, in the martial arts, if you if you start thinking too much in combat or in life, you're dead. <laughs> so, and there's another proverb, you don't want to think without acting or act without thinking. There is a certain balance involved. But I stopped overthinking things and I realized the power of just doing it, which, we've all, which we all know. Um, so I think that incident was, was uh, shaped my life. And then of course came the discovery, not long after that, I, well, I was about 10, at a summer camp of an old trampoline. Now that's not particularly exciting to most people. They've seen these round backyard trampolines and so on. Um, but there's something about it. My friends would play a little bit and leave and I'd stay on it. And I kept jumping by myself, wanting to learn a flip, wanting to make some progress. 
And uh, I finally did. Uh, but I think my loving to jump up and down reflected my interest in Superman and Peter Pan when I was young. They could fly. And I think it represented ascension to me, rising above transcendence. My little mind couldn't have grasped that at the time. Mm -hmm. But that's, that was another uh, formative moment. And of course, who knew that jumping on a trampoline for me would lead to scholarship to UC Berkeley, uh, uh, in gymnastics, uh, 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 national and world championship, and all that followed. But it began with those formative moments in childhood. Okay, so that's that's a, a much deeper answer than I expected, but that's awesome. Well, <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question. It. Well, it's funny when I read your first book, I was like, "Where's the origin here?" Like, you know, I read it a long time ago now, but I've read it a few times since. As I said, it's pretty much the first book I read that started to get me more connected to what I would call spirituality. But for me, just being being aware and being present, right, all those sort of things. So, just to play around with this a little bit, so that that sort of jumping off that that sort of taking action, um, I suppose, facing fears. How did that then, I suppose, form and shape some of the other things that have happened in your life? Well, I want to emphasize that I don't see uh, my training in acrobatics and gymnastics as a preparation for spiritual life. It was actually the beginning of it. Right. Because athletes, acrobats, and, and people who train in, uh, their body in various skills, whether athletics or mu music, uh, uh, other skill levels, that practice teaches us about the law, the spiritual law or universal law of process, how you learn step by step. You don't just theorize about it, you actually experience it. And so my training in gymnastics, acrobatics was the beginning of my spiritual training. I learned what it meant to live in the present moment, in the zone, uh, in flow, as they call yeah. it these days. Um, so that was the beginning, and, and that was the foundation uh, of what followed. But I'll, I'll tell you this. When I was young, and many people may share this, uh, this, this interest, I was very, very involved with self-improvement. And of course, you know, self-improvement, it seems a good thing, because uh, if each of us is a cell in the body, this living creature we call planet Earth, then the better the health and awareness of each cell, the better it is for the planet. So I'm all for self-improvement. However, I mean, after learning speed reading and memory courses, going to those, and ventriloquism and magic, it became a hobby of mine, sleight of hand, um, and martial arts and, gym, and, and gymnastics, acrobatics, all these things um, that improved me in various ways. One day, I think it was in my late adolescence, maybe in college, it struck me that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if somehow I could help improve the lives of other people, that made my life more meaningful. I didn't know how I would do it at that time. But as right. I grew, I think that that commitment to share what I've learned with others, not just to learn, but to share it with others. My calling as a teacher, I would say, came fairly young. I think that opened me up to meeting the various and paying attention to the various uh, master teachers I would study with eventually over a 20 year period after a, a, a while after I graduated from college, coached at Stanford University for four years, and then uh, got a professorship at Oberlin College in Ohio. Around that time, my spiritual quest took shape consciously. Um, 
And just just to sort of jump back to what you said beforehand, because in that that idea of improving yourself or or self-development, did you not think also at the time that just you becoming more aware and a better version of yourself, to use that somewhat overused term, that was not also having an impact without having to teach? Just how you were showing up in the world? Sure, of course. Uh, it, it, It did and it didn't. Um, because I need to clarify by telling a, a brief story about a man who came to me. You'll relate to this because he'd read Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And he said, Dan, he, he approached me and said, Dan, now having read your book, I'm really interested in spiritual practice. But he went on, uh, you know, I, I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. Where can I find the time for this spirituality? And he came to understand after a bit more conversation that his wife, his children, and his full-time job, his work in the world, were his, prime, were his primary forms of spiritual practice. And they will demand more of us, as many of us have discovered, and they will develop us more than sitting in a cave up in the mountains meditating. I know this because I've done both. And I had a lot of time to do the, the so-called <laughs> spiritual esoteric practices of every kind, inner work and so on, But the arena of what I call the peaceful warrior is everyday life for all of us. And that's what I wanted to emphasize. Yeah, I I, I get that. And it's also, I think there's a piece there where some people um, have have some sort of conflict, if you like, between the idea of spirituality and what they're then realizing in day-to-day life. And and one of the things I've taken from what you've written beforehand is there is definitely um, a symmetry between the two things, and they shouldn't be necessarily separated. Exactly. Uh, and if well, I people may, struggle I'm with storyteller. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. You know, one time during the 70s uh, or early 70s, late 60s actually, I was still at Cal, and, and I tell the story about Socrates. You know, my old mentor, the man I met in oh, the yeah. gas station. Oh yeah, it gets revealed in the book. Um... <laughs> Yes, <laughs> which is, I thought when I saw, when I saw that, I thought you must get asked all the time who it is. So you thought I've got to write a book. So I don't have to keep asking that, answering exactly. that same question. Exactly. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> but it was based on a real old guy. I met a cosmic old guy who was a gas station attendant, service station mechanic, about three in the morning uh, in Berkeley in 1966. Um, and any, anyway, the story I tell is Socrates and I are walking down the street on Telegraph Avenue in, in Berkeley. And uh, we, I, we see some posters. One is about starving children. One is about the Vietnam War and the horrors going on there. And one was about oppressed uh, peoples. And at, during this time, you know, in the story, he had me doing all this self-oriented inner work, self-massage, a Mongolian warrior massage to clear fear-produced tensions from the body and, and um, various kinds of meditation and I was doing all this inner work and I said, Socrates, sometimes I feel kind of guilty seeing these posters. Shouldn't I be more of a social activist in, in the world, you know, what, doing all this self-oriented, you know, navel gazing and so on. Uh, and, and he turned to me and he kind of surprised me. I should have never been surprised, but in the story, as it goes, he said, um, hey, take a swing at me. And I went, what? I knew he was a martial arts guy, you know, but but he said, take a swing at me. I'll, I'll give you five bucks if you can slap me on the cheek. Come on, go for it. So I started bobbing and weaving. And then I made a quick slap for his face and found myself in the next moment on the, on the ground in a rather <laughs> painful wrist lock. And he said, you notice, Dan, a little leverage can be very effective. I, by the way, I got this little scene in, in the movie, in the Peaceful Warrior movie based on the book, um, a couple weeks before shooting. Um, I got the director to include this, this little scene. So anyway, I'm on the floor and he's helping me up. 
I said, yeah, I noticed a little leverage can be very effective. Mm -hmm. And he said, then do what your heart tells you in terms of if you want to be active in the world and help people and protest and do whatever you're going to do, you know, that's, that's your concern. He said, but don't neglect the work on yourself so you can develop the clarity to know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. And that as a teacher is what I've been striving to do ever since to find the right leverage for change. So it's not an either or, it's not about, should I work on myself or work in the world? Both. Both. Yeah. And do you find that there is a, a, you know, we mentioned the word flow beforehand. Do you find that there are some points where that becomes more effortless for people when they are maybe aligned with their purpose more or aligned with their values? Well, I wouldn't say it's less effort. Uh, maybe it's less effortful. Okay. We don't try as much uh, in, in Yoda's terminology, which came much after <laughs> my book. <Yeah. laughs> maybe Lu- Lucas. Don't try, just do. I think it is. My, my, yeah, my little girls do. are obsessed with that. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> because trying implies tension, which yes. makes everything harder. Uh, but I think it's not necessarily less effort. Uh, yes, it's more relaxed. It's more flowing and so on, more natural in a sense. But challenges remain. It's just that we don't view them in the same way. They, they, we accept them, embrace them. Um, we become more prepared. So in, in other words, I think many people can relate to the idea that sometimes climbing out of a dark hole gives us the strength to climb the mountain. So mm. our, our, I view yeah. daily life as a form of spiritual weight training. And the, the events, relationships, money, finances, decision-making, um, seeking a career, entrepreneurial work, all those are forms of a path or way of development. And they can all develop us. And we, they prepare us to take on those, those uh, different things. You know, when I turned 60, which was mm, 70, no, 16 years ago, <laughs> um, I actually decided I wanted to do something special for my 60th birthday. So I said, I'm going to learn to ride a unicycle. And a friend of mine loaned me his unicycle and set it up for the right height and everything. And he recommended I go to a a tennis court uh, in in our neighborhood uh, down the street. Um, So because it's good level surface and I can get a death grip on the chain link fence, you know, while I was trying to ride the unicycle around. Anybody has tried to ride a unicycle. (laughs) Have you ever tried, Nick? I have have tried to ride a unicycle. I wasn't, I I wouldn't say I was consistent with it. No, no, no. But you, you know, it's humbling. It really is humbling because yeah, you know, so I so. could ride a bike. Why not? So I got on it, whoop, went out from under me. I got on it, whoop, went out from under me. So point is, uh, to make the story short, um, I struggled every single day coming back that morning and trying to ride. And first week I was able to careen forward six pedals. Second week, maybe 12 pedals. By the third week, something clicked and I was able to do figure eights around the tennis court. It took me that long to learn to ride it. However, I learned two valuable lessons, which is why I'm sharing this story. The first one was that everything is difficult until it becomes easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the second right. thing I learned was that there were days, and I think many people, again, may be able to relate to this in learning. There were days where everything fell apart. My body was confused. My mind was confused. It was like a quote unquote bad day. And I seemed worse than I was three days before, even though I'd been practicing. And, but I also noticed that the day after those so-called bad days, I usually made a breakthrough. 
And the learning mm. was actually happening, going from the front brain, the precognitive mentalizing of it to the back brain, the more instinctive part. Uh, that process made me confused, but that's when the learning was happening. That can happen in a relationship, but if you just persist through those bad days, whether it's in a relationship where you have a crisis, you keep going, you break through to deeper levels of intimacy in any field. Mm. So that's what I learned about the process of learning in response to your question, does it get easier? And I can't promise that, but we're better prepared. So it seems easier. I've never heard that explained that way beforehand. Uh, you know, the, I've heard the idea that sometimes it's, you know, it could be, you know, two steps forward, one step back, right? As a simplification sure. of what you just said. Sure. But, um, you know, one of the things I, I believe and I talk about a lot on here is that you don't really fail at anything unless you really give up on it, right? Exactly. So there's a point Nobody here. Nobody fails, you just quit trying. Exactly right. Um, I want to get into, into mentorship and talk a little bit about how you chose mentors, how they showed up. I'm sure there's going to be some different ways of, of how we express that. Before we do that, I just want to get your understanding and how you think about spirituality in general. So when, if, I, if I asked you the question, what is spirituality, Dan, for you, how would you answer that? I once asked my daughter when she was 10 years old, she was a voracious reader, and one of my daughters, and um, I asked her to give me a list. I said, maybe tomorrow you can give me a list of 10 books you remember that you consider spiritual books. And she gave me the list the next day. And not a single one of those books was about metaphysics, new age, uh, <laughs> or what we normally identify as spiritual. They were books that uplifted her, that inspired her. And to me, uh, spirituality is, is every day. I used to thought, I, I I used to know what spirituality was. Now, everywhere I look, I see spirit. You know, the, the weather person doesn't come on the radio saying 20% uh, chance of rain today and 32% uh, spirit out. You know, it's, it, we're surrounded by spirit, by beauty, by inspiration, but we often aren't paying attention. Our attention is trapped by what am I going to do about my relationship, my body, my uh, work, and so on. And so we don't have the free attention of a child to look around, open our eyes, unless we travel to a different environment. People love traveling because it wakes them up a little bit. You know, yeah. when you're in Europe, uh, when I'm in Europe, I go, look, a laundromat. That's an exciting thing. But I hardly notice it when I'm walking down the street here in Brooklyn, New York. So I think um, spirituality, it gets tricky after a while. It seems like an elsewhere thing that's special, but we can bring spirit to our everyday life. In fact, in the beginning of the new book, um, I have one page where I uh, define some terms like enlightenment, spirituality, and that which uplifts and inspires. I would say that's a, as good a definition as I've found. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, as you, it's, a, it's a good point, particularly around this idea of sometimes you catch yourself, right? Like you go out there and you might I'd be able to go for a walk after we've had this conversation with, with the dogs. And there'll be a point there where I do that because I'm very present and I, and I, and I see things that I may not see if I'm just looking at my phone. Do you think right. with all the distractions that are happening in the world these days, and there's a lot of, you know, competing things going on, we've got lots of change, right? Change is accelerating. Some of that's accelerated through technology. Do you think that's having an impact on people's ability to be more spiritual? Well, I think it's, impacts people's ability to think straight, to be, to yeah. be aware in general. Um, look, we, we live um, in two worlds. Uh, our psyche exists in two worlds, one of two worlds. One, uh, appropriately, is the conventional world. 
our day-to-day duties and tasks, family and everything else. And usually about 99% of our time for most people is spent in the conventional. But there is also that transcendent possibility, what I would call the transcendental levels of being. The way I would describe it concretely is the conventional world is like lying down close to the ground at the base of a mountain, looking in the weeds and seeing little insects here and there and animals grazing and seeing what's happening up close to us. But if we find ourselves all of a sudden transported to the mountaintop, we look around at this 360 degree panorama, everything looks more beautiful in the distance. And that top of that mountain, that it represents the transcendent, the big picture of life where we gain perspective, which is the better part of wisdom. And we look around and we see it's okay. It's all happening. You know, people from space, the first astronauts went up space jockeys and came down mystics like Edgar Mitchell, because they had seen the vision with their own eyes of earth from space and the beauty of this blue green planet, this mystery floating in space. And it's good to remember that sometimes and study cosmology and big picture stuff. Uh, and we, we, it pulls us out of our own preoccupations with conventional life. So that- You would get back to Cosmo something or other because you mentioned it beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, last, last question on this piece because again, I'm just fascinated by the way you think about these things. Mm-hmm. Is there, I mean, because there, there's, there's great benefits, if you like, at seeing the vista. Right, you know, seeing the seeing the world from the thirty thousand feet, but a lot of us get stuck in the minutia every day. Yeah. What's your philosophy around that, or what do you advise people when they come to you and they share maybe an insight or a perspective they've got from reading your books, and they say, "Dan, how, how can I live like this more? You know, what do right. I need to do?" And I don't want to get too much into habits and things. It's more, yeah. may, maybe a philosophy or a theme. Well, uh, you know, after I wrote my first book, I didn't write another book for ten years after Peaceful Warrior. And, and then I met um, uh, really actually the third of my four mentors that I describe in the, in the new memoir. Yeah. And that stimulated me. And I jumped in and started writing more books. First was Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior, which was like Way of the Peaceful Warrior because it was a story, a teaching story. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people would come up to me and say, Dan, I was inspired by your first two books, but how do you apply this stuff to everyday life? So I finally wrote the third book, which had too much information to convey through a story. So I wrote No Ordinary Moments, A Peaceful Warrior's Guide to Daily Life. And it dealt with many, many different topics. It's not, I wish I could give a one-stop shopping. Many people present meditation is the answer to everything or, or this method, this technique, you know, that will fix your <laughs> or life. Or a great morning routine with 25 different things that you have to tick exactly. off a to-do list, right? And oh, exactly. anyway, don't get me started well, on that. <laughs> looking back, I find that, you know, um, for example, working out. Look, there, when someone comes to me, like I did a consultation with someone yesterday, and often they say, I have a spiritual problem, I have an emotional problem, I have a relationship. I ask them three questions first. Are you getting, are you doing regular moderate exercise almost every day? Second question, are you eating a balanced diet for you? And the third question is, are you getting enough rest? Because we know more and more research today, sleep deprivation is not a good thing. And we tend to stay up with our devices, looking at them late at night, forgetting we have to get up in the morning and start our day. So people often are sleep deprived. So those three things, exercise, diet, really basic. We all know this. 
But how do we turn what we know into what we actually do? Well, to keep it practical, for example, I created something and I've been doing it every day for probably almost 40 years now, the Peaceful Warrior Workout. It's a four minute routine. Now I know in the New York Times and the Air Force and they have all kinds of six minute, eight minute, five minute routine. <laughs> but I created this a long time ago based on extensive experience in dance, martial arts, calisthenics, yoga, and so on. I put this thing together, which is deep breathing, uh, free movement and tension release to, that gets every part of the body. So this four minute workout is based on the idea, a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. At least you get your foot in the door. So when people ask me practical questions like, yeah, but how do I, you know, how do I get to where I'm going, reach my potential? I say, dream big, but start small mm, and then good. connect nice. the dots. Nice. And I like, and the other thing there, which, you know, is implied with everything you said is consistency, right? You know, mm -hmm. what, what one person does is going to be different from another person. There's obviously things that you mentioned, which right. we could all benefit from, but it's the fact that, you know, can we stay at something long enough, A, for it to have an impact and for it right. to become something that we just do, right? So, and if it's convenient and accessible, we're more likely to do it. That's why I created the four minute workout. It's not the same as an hour and a half doing yoga or uh, pumping iron at the gym or running five miles. No, but it has elements, strength, suppleness, balance, coordination, rhythm, timing. So that's the, the point uh, of, of a, doing a little bit and, and having major results because you stick with it. Yeah, and if anyone wants to see um, Dan on a TEDx talk about eight years ago doing a handstand, <laughs> yeah, I still I still do those. I was going to say, you can, well, it's pretty impressive oh, <laughs> in <thanks>. terms of <laughs> strength and, and mobility. Let's move into talking about mentorship. I just wanted to kind of set the scene a little bit here. Um, and yes. one of the things that you know, having looked through the book, that jumped out to me is this idea of you know you have lots of people who come into your life. I'm talking about us generally. When do you know? that someone, that particular individual is going to become such a, an important person, a mentor to you? Because, you know, you must have had heaps of people you could have chosen that came into your life, but you selected four specifically in this book. I liken it to the old days when we used to walk into bookstores. Remember those? Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I look young, but I'm 48, right? So you oh, know, I, do remember, I do remember some things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look that age. Oh, okay, wow. well, see, anyway. I just have to, I'm wise, wise beyond my years. No, I'm joking. But no, I yes. do remember going to bookstores and I still love walking into old bookstores. There's something very romantic and peaceful and everything about that experience. You probably go into like some other brainwave state. You know, I know I do. I oh. go into a sort of trance. But when we go into a bookstore, we find some books we ignore. We go through them and we ignore them because we've been there and done that. Mm-hmm. Other books that we ignore or we miss because we're not quite ready yet to actually see them. But when we find that book that's right for us at the right time, many people report Way of the Peaceful Warrior jumped out of the bookcase at them. You know, who knows why the mysterious thing where they end up reading one of my books. Like but, I say, just quickly on that, it jumped out yeah. to me because I was massively into martial arts at the time. Ah, um, and, the word and, warrior, peaceful warrior. and there was, and there was something about, uh, I did uh, Taekwondo for years yeah, and there was something sure. about the discipline of that, but also the commitment and a certain amount of peace that I had from the practice. So there was right. that, but, but your expression of that, it jumped out. It definitely did. It wasn't recommended to me. I was yeah. looking <laughs> yeah. and there it was, you know, this shiny so was book. Your experience. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, it's over for, for about 40 years, I've been teaching this kind of material. Um, I, about 50% of the people who show up to my trainings, whether it's a meditation, whether it's knife fighting, 
and I've taught for 14 years in night, spiritual growth through night fighting are usually uh, about half male, half female. Mm-hmm. And of course, today, there are many identities. I want to acknowledge that. But, but basically, uh, there's a, it reflects a balance. Peaceful warrior. Peaceful heart, warrior spirit. Many people can relate to that. That's why I recommend people live with their head in the clouds, but their feet on the ground. And that can be a stretch for many of us. So um, that, that whole idea of uh, well, how I found my mentors. Well, again, the openness I had. Like going into a bookstore and selecting books, yes, I, I grazed shoulders with various teachers, but it didn't stick. There's something about it I just didn't appeal to me. Um, I didn't get caught up in too many like cults and you know um, various methods or obviously diluted approaches. Um, but the circumstances were a bit synchronous. And by the way, one of the fundamental principles that I teach along this approach to living, I call the peaceful warrior's way, is that there's no best book, there's no best teacher, including mine, there's no best path or religion or diet or exercise or philosophy. There's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. So what worked, what was best for me was the discovery I made. And and for example, the circumstances. Uh, Now we've all had role models. We've all had mentors in our lives, teachers who remember from school, who, who brought out our best and so on. But these were really heavy hitters. And again, I spent almost 20 years working with through these four uh, radically different mentors. And the first one, who I call the professor, um, I, I, was, I was teaching at Oberlin College and I got a grant to travel around the world on research, of mind-body disciplines and so on, which really intrigued me at the time I was committed to this uh, exploration. Um, and I'd, I'd studied various forms of meditation and so on by that time. Um, so I flew to California uh, in preparation my, to see my parents, but also in preparation to fly to Hawaii and Okinawa, Japan and, and elsewhere in India and so on. And I had an open ticket. So the schedule was my own. And when I arrived in California on impulse, on impulse, I called uh, one of my former teammates at Cal and, and Herb, his name was, he, he said, Dan, I just completed a life-changing, absolutely incredible training with this fellow, um, named Oscar Ichazo, and I called the professor. Uh, and he said, this is based on a global heritage of every kind of spiritual tradition, the, the, the creme de la creme. And he said, if there's any way you can do this in your present circumstance, drop everything and do this training. It was 40 days, 10 hours a day, completely immersive. And I said, well, it's gonna cut some of my travel time because I have the summer to do, but you, okay. I looked into it and I said, this feels right. So I ended up doing the 40 day later in advanced training and later more advanced work. Um, and uh, yes, I was exposed to the technology, spiritual technology, the inner work, every kind, breathing, relaxation, meditation, diet. Um, the but yeah, just to unpack that for everyone listening here. Oh yeah. So when we, when we talk about the 40 days, what, what, yeah. what's, you mentioned a couple of things there. What specifically was it? Or what was, the, what was the outcome you were potentially looking for? Or perhaps you didn't have an outcome. You were just going to experience it. Good question. Well, both are true. I was just going to experience it in my own case, see what happened. But the promise was enlightenment. Right. Okay. Classic enlightenment. Uh, he said, 40 days, you do the work, you'll get the results. 
And each individual is different, of course, to some degree. But if you really sincerely did the work, I mean, some people, you know, they'll do meditation and, and they're kind of daydreaming, basically. And other people are really, really working at, you know, letting go and noticing and being aware and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, as, as a former athlete, uh, I sometimes tell people that meditation is an exercise. Push-ups are an exercise. Um, and if you do push-ups over time, predictably, you get stronger in various muscle groups. And if you meditate over time, likely you will begin to notice the nature of thought, the nature of mind, uh, the illusory nature of these passing random discursive thoughts. But the primary difference between push-ups and meditation is you can't pretend to do push-ups. <laughs> uh, there's something very physical and real about it. Uh, there's consequences if you do or don't. You can't <laughs> pretend. But people can sit around and say, yes, I meditate regularly, but they're really kind of just sitting and daydreaming for a while. So the point is, um, different students have different responses. And I applied the same commitment that I had as a gymnast, uh, a certain perfectionism, a certain intensity. Um, Later on, I found out they called me the robot because of my earnestness. I was just really into every exercise. So I can't say I didn't become <laughs> enlightened because I didn't do enough. I really dug in. And many people have heard of the Enneagram. They, they've read books on the Enneagram personality types and so on. All this stuff came from the professor. He, wow. they, all, okay. all the authors acknowledged him as the source, the modern day source of this particular approach to understanding the self. Um, so th that was just one part of the training. So I'm not going to try to sell this thing. Uh, it was 40 days, 10 hours a day, completely immersive. And then, uh, as I said, when we weren't enlightened, Oscar created an advanced training where we get, got learned more than even in the initial one, because we were prepared by that time. Um, and I'm not going to go into the details of why I ended up moving on, but I did find I was married at the time. Before I left college, I was married. We had a baby on the way as well uh, after a while. And uh, we, our marriage was not uh, a good fit. We, we stuck it out for almost eight years. Uh, now, my, the love of my life, I married after that, Joy, and we've been married 46 years. So I really learned a lot from the first training wheel marriage, let's say. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I, I know I've looked at life from both sides. I know what it's like having a relationship difficulty. The point I'm making is there was like a firewall between all the inner work, which made me better at doing inner work. But okay. it didn't really help me mature as a human being in other ways, where I was able to maintain a, a good, giving, caring relationship as much as I can now. So that was what a disillusioning you... experience. But what did you, from that experience, because again, I like, I like the, the idea anyway of you can outgrow your mentors, right? There's a point where there's nothing wrong with that because we all evolve, we all change. But, but that, that, that first mentor we talk about, what was the, you said enlightenment, but what was the drive to want to experience enlightenment? First question. The second question is, you know, once you'd gone through um, more than just the 40 days, because obviously you leaned into this for, for longer than that. How did you change? How, how did you see yourself change? Good question. I, I had previously experienced a taste of enlightenment, preview of coming attractions. Uh, I describe in my memoir how I explored briefly LSD, 
um, in order to see what was inside. This is after yeah. I'd shattered my leg in a motorcycle crash and was recovering from that. But it shook me up. I started asking bigger questions about life. You know, I realized I wasn't bulletproof as we often believe in the 20s, you know. Yeah. I was mortal. And I started asking, what is life for? And so that LSD experience did, for me at the time, was a good set, peaceful setting, safe, good quality and everything. Um, and I emphasize that. Uh, I haven't used drugs really since, uh, but, but that was a valuable experience for me at the time. Uh, and I also had a couple of experiences. I relate to one during that Eureka training, the advanced training, where I suddenly began laughing because it's like I got the punchline to the cosmic joke, the cosmic riddle. Um, and so I had these tastes, these previews, once sitting on a curb in Berkeley, I was eating a grapefruit before workout. I was just sitting there with free attention. Suddenly everything was like totally perfect. I couldn't <laughs> describe it. I was seeing car exhaust. I was seeing litter on the street, but it was all perfect. And, and I couldn't see anything that wasn't. So these little previews mm. where I saw everything was my mind. Um, it's hard to describe. It's like watching someone do Tai Chi. It's very nice, but you know, it's someone else's experience. Uh, however, it said, you know, this feels so important to grasp this breakthrough realization. And that's why I was motivated for enlightenment, for the spiritual quest. It seemed like the master game. You know, it's been said that life is a game we play as if it matters. And, and uh, this was the master game. And so that's why I was motivated at the time, uh, enlightenment or bust. And that's what <laughs> drew me to the professor. And then the guru, the second mentor, um, and he had a radically different approach. I mean, he, to technological inner work type things. He said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. He was uh, but very charismatic, uh, respected by many scholars, Alan Watts, Ken Wilbur, and others lauded him. And I was with the guru on and off. Joy and I, she went through this whole journey with me. We were married by this time. Um, she... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, for eight years, we were in the community, living in a community household in San Francisco area at the time and experiencing this charismatic figure with whom you could have a direct relationship with, quote, unquote, the divine. Um, and without doing techniques, it was just a heartfelt connection to the guru. And it was a classic, more classic Eastern approach to surrendering to a guru, uh, wise and brilliant. And his books were absolutely uh, classic. Um, he was a writer. I mean, he went to Columbia, graduated with an MA in English from Stanford. Um, he was well-educated American spiritual master. Because, you know, I hadn't personally, I didn't want to become a Hindu. I didn't want to become um, a Hasidic uh, Jew or study the Kabbalah. I didn't want to become a Christian mystic or a Zen. I didn't want to grasp or cling to a particular tradition. And that was my strength and my weakness because people kept going, well, but what are you? You know, are you a Yahoo? Uh, wh why what was driving? What was driving that though, Dan? Cause I mean, I mean, was that just, was it curiosity to some yeah. extent or the, the search for something greater? It was or still did the you search never, for something greater. I, or did you never I, actually connect with one thing that just felt fully you or fully for you? Yeah. Well, the best I can answer that is some people take up one martial art like yeah. Taekwondo, and they study it until there's fifth, sixth, seventh degree black belt. That is their way. That is their martial mm -hmm. art. I was always attracted to studying. First, I studied 
uh, a teeny bit of boxing as a kid, then judo, and then karate, and the Okinawan style. Think Mr. Miyagi in the karate. No, kid. I know that one. O- Okinawan. <laughs> Then, then Aikido, and and I got a. a uh, you did the hardest on. one, didn't you? I mean, I did Aikido for two years. It was difficult. Yeah. Well, it's a be- it's a beautiful art. It's very aesthetic, it. right? It's, it's a metaphor yes. for living, flowing with life, and. I love the the philosophy of Aikido. Um, is just incredible. I think yeah. you know, and yeah. and but but also in terms of mastery or whatever you want to call it, the idea of. <laughs> It's it's so technical as well, you know. Right. But of course, you know, I'm talking. I'm talking to someone who's got what have you got a third degree black belt or something? No, just a first degree. First degree. So so if if I'm ever attacked on the street, I can whip out my certificate now. You know. There you go. I'm sure you can flip. You know, uh, the rock if he ever came to attack you. But either way, um, but but, uh, that's an interesting interesting point. Just to draw draw a line under what you said. You're right. You know, there is no there is no way that has to be you know the same for everybody. As we said beforehand early in the conversation, right? There's a piece where it's what works for them. But the, the, as we go through these mentors, you know, because I, I do want to talk about each of them before we finish up today, I'm, I'm just really curious about the transition point, you know, that point where you said, okay, I've now, now is the time, you know, because obviously that, that, that you then moved to something different. Was it, was each trans- transition point different or was it a similar yes. feeling? No, okay. each was different. Now I was, because authenticity is so important to me and that's just part of my quality, my character. Yeah. Um, that that I became disillusioned easily. Okay. It was like, hmm, this didn't do it. And then this didn't do it. So an experimental nature where I was trying this and trying that with a combination of this disillusion, freeing from illusion, like, hmm, the technological approach may not be the answer. Not a fourth level or fifth level or sixth level training or seventh level with Oscar and with the guru, um, Adi Da, his name was, um, mm-hmm. Not, not with him either. Um, after eight years, there were some things that happened in the community and the guru's behavior, which was highly unconventional. He never claimed to be a, a celibate, you know, or a conventional guru from the, from the East, but he was a wild man and um, from the crazy wisdom tradition. But he, his behavior became pretty clear to us and some others in the community that it just didn't seem appropriate as brilliant as he was. So you use the term outgrow your teachers, and that is not the case. I have great respect and admiration for my teachers. Uh, Oscar was absolutely a genius and the guru was as well. Um, But whether it was appropriate for me to stay with him forever, as some have, um, that wasn't appropriate. And so I moved on for different reasons with each teacher. But you must and, have, and, but you, but you're changing yeah. all the way through this, right? You know, you're evolving. You're, yes. You know, you're thinking. You, you, you. Maybe the things that you value are evolving. So, th- so that's that's how I sort of meant with the point that there's a there's sometimes you, there's almost like a divergence or there's an alignment, right? Convergence, yes. whatever yes. you know what I mean. And there's a point where you know that you know you know like, the reason I, I bring it up like I am is I've had this experience many a time as well, and there's no there's nothing wrong, right? It's just that, you know, what I'm trying to either learn or do or be has changed. And I've had a new awareness of that. And that means I have to then find something else or search for something else. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, I'll tell you, the guru himself said there are three approaches to spiritual life and they correspond to the three different phases of human life, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. And he said in the childhood of our spiritual seeking, What do children need? They need a parent figure. 
someone to surrender to, to okay. project all power and wisdom on, like children do, adults and parents especially. Um, and they look for a parent figure. And, and he said then eventually some, he, there's nothing wrong with childhood <laughs> anymore. There's anything wrong with the childhood of our spiritual seeking, but we have to grow out of it eventually. And we become adolescents and adolescents have to find their own way, throw off the values they've been taught. And so they get into this, only I know what's best. This know-it-all ignorance. Sort a bit more of rebellious in their thinking and outlook. <laughs> exactly. You know that. You know how oh, yeah. that is. And most of us do. We remember in some sense, or we have teenagers. I've got a 10-year-old in the house who's uh, starting to explore that now. I think it's a little exactly. bit young, but she's doing it, so I can't. <laughs> but well, I know exactly. Great. It is yeah. good. It is good. It's um, yeah. It kind of reminds you sometimes of how you know you went through and had changes in your own life when you've got kids who are doing that. So, exactly. no, I totally understand it. I totally understand it. Just a quick um, check here in terms of the timeline. When did you write The Way of the Peaceful Warrior? I was just going to get to that. Ah, good, sorry. Just to finish the third <laughs> of those three levels, uh, in adulthood, we don't throw out authority figures. We don't reject them automatically. We don't analyze them. We just find wisdom wherever mm. it, we happen to find it, even maybe in an old service station attendant. But the point is, it was after I studied with the professor and the guru for a, a total of about 10 years, that is when I was moved. I felt I had something to share and I wanted to share it through a story. And that's how I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior in 1979, came out in 1980 was first published yeah. uh, and it's still going strong through the generations. It's amazing. Um, it wasn't because I was so brilliant. I would have written all books that sold like that. But but um, the point is, it just happened to touch a chord, the zeitgeist, and, and many people could relate to it. Uh, it was you know an everyday search. So it was after the first two gurus, they influenced, or the first two masters, they influenced what I wrote in Way of the Peaceful Warrior and uh, the sum of my understanding at the time. And it was only after that, in that 10-year period following, uh, that I met the third mentor. Uh, by the way, at this point in time, I was done with teachers. I had had what I considered the two heaviest hitting <laughs> radical approaches, techniques and surrender to the guru. That was it. I'd lived the way and I'd, I'd searched for enlightenment and, and discovered elements of it. And by that time, did you think um, about giving up at all at this point? Were you, were you tarnished by the experiences? Were you thinking, actually, this is just a bit too much for me? Or was it, were you no. driven more to keep, to keep searching for enlightenment? Well, neither exactly. I, okay. I wasn't tarnished. Uh, I, I, I was polished in, in a sense and it tempered my spirit. And, and I seasons, you were, you were experienced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So, so um, but I wasn't looking for another teacher. And one night I got a phone call from someone I didn't know. She said, Dan, I found your number. And this was in San Rafael. And she said, there's a fellow um, named Michael Bookbinder I'd never heard of. She said, he, he's a martial arts master and a metaphysician, uh, a healer. And uh, he was a former bounty hunter. He's an adventurer. He's a bush pilot, an EMT, blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, well, it sounds intriguing. She said, well, look, he's giving a talk at the local women's club. Uh, and he'd like to invite you. He read your first book uh, and, and he really liked it and wanted to uh, invite you to this talk he's giving. And I, I, as a courtesy, I said, well, thank you. I'll consider it. But I really wasn't interested. I was done with teachers and I just wanted to live my life, raise my two daughters at the time and, yeah. and, uh, and so on. But on that Tuesday night, um, the, kids, the little girls were asleep. We'd read on their stories and sung to them and they were asleep. And Joy had some things to do. And she said, Dan, isn't that teacher, that martial arts guy, going to give a talk tonight? 
She said, look, it's about 20 minutes. It takes five minutes. Just why don't you drive to the women's club and, and uh, have a listen? And I went, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about it, but okay. Well, that little coincidence um, oh. was to shape my life to come. So it was like seeing a long lost brother. We had a very intense time. He was a colleague. The guru was a distant figure up on a dais, you know. He, he uh, wasn't a, a personal friend or a direct relationship except cosmically. And, and, and Oscar stayed behind the scenes. His contribution was the school. It wasn't about him. So this was the first time I had a direct personal relationship. We traveled together, and there are adventures I describe in the book with him. Uh, but he was an adventurer. He described himself as a cheerleader to the soul, in which I also have taken on that mantle. And he lifted me up where I needed it, at a time I needed it, and gave me a role model for the style of teaching um, that, that, I, that I took on. So I kind of embraced and took in what qualities I could. But I want to emphasize that one of the themes I repeat in the, in the new memoir is that all teachers are human and all humans have flaws and foibles. And so we need to accept that rather than expect them to be either perfect or failed masters. They can be both. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I mean, I've seen that with my mentors as well, because there's a point where sometimes maybe you put people on a pedestal, right? Because there is a, a thing that they do or something that you connect with that's going to, you know, you think is going to help you or serve you. But after a while you see, you, know, you see the, the other side of that. Like, it was explained to me once that we all, we all have the ability um, to do, it was, it was explained as good and evil, but I know it's, that's probably a little bit too generic. But the point is we can do things that align with, with values or are misaligned with values. And we all have the ability to do either of those things. And the point being is that when we judge, try and judge others against our set of values, and it's not theirs, there is no real right and wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just what you see or what you experience at that point in time. Yeah. And, and we measure the world with the yardstick of our own values, as you said. Yes. And, and uh, George Bernard Shaw once said, uh, sin is geographical <laughs> because what's a sin in one culture may not be in another, another time. Yeah, exactly, exactly so, that. Yeah. It was a liberating, when I understood that concept or that thought, mm -hmm. it was liberating to some extent because, you know, the, it does start to open up the the question of what is reality, right? Because what you see and what you experience now, even in this conversation will be different to what I experience, right? From our different perspectives, all shaped. So there is no real, real, real thing going on here. It's just what we see and what we, what we, what we feel. So. Well, that, that you raise an important point because in this post-truth uh, era we're living in, apparently, where everyone has their own facts rather than their own opinions, oh, yeah. um, we need to also say there are spiritual laws. There are universal laws. It's a central part of my teaching. Um, it operates not just on my opinions or beliefs, but on universal laws, like the law of gravity. It works whether or not we happen to believe in it. Yeah. And so we need to rely on uh, to some degree, I'm a huge fan of science. It pulled us out, the scientific method pulled us out of the dark ages of superstition and helped us test what is real, what works, what doesn't. So um, I, I, I think there is some level of, of truth, though we can have different experiences. Like I can say this is a chair I'm sitting in and you can agree. But if I say it's a beautiful chair, you might have a different opinion. So yeah. in that way, we, we have individual differences. Let's talk about the fourth mentor. Actually, have you have you finished um, explaining? Actually, putting going to the experience of the third mentor. But you know, obviously, you you traveled. There was that personal connection. At what point in time did you say, actually, I need to I need to move on and do something else? What happened? 
Well, it was a, a very different uh, reason to move on. Um, he told me our time together would be relatively brief and it was intense. Um, and I, I learned a great deal of, of techniques, the three selves that help explain a model for helping explain who we are and how we work. Um, and the knife fighting training that I taught for 14 years, I learned from, from him. It was an incredible way to make some shifts in our way we approach life mm. and insight. Uh, so, and also, of course, one of my best-selling books uh, based on a number system, the life purpose system, a book called The Life You Were Born to Live, that, that book uh, was over a million copies uh, in, in print because um, people really took to that. And I learned the basics of that system, again, from the warrior priest. He really was trained me for the work I was going to be doing. In fact, until that time, I'd been teaching mostly gymnastics, holistic gymnastics as a way or a path in my experience in the martial arts, you know, that I had that lineage and that background, but um, I really didn't step forward to work with spiritual life skills until I met the warrior priest. So he had a huge impact, but then he had some um, a personal medical emergency that changed his personality, let's say, okay. to keep it simple right here. I'm not gonna try to explain everything in the book, but he had, um, and, and unfortunately it led to uh, uh, his cutting off from me, moving away and cutting off from uh, his other staff who had, had taken care of him after a, a, a hemorrhage in his brain. So that's why we ended up uh, parting ways, it was, tragically, really. Yeah, okay. um, and, and then uh, again, if you thought I was done with teachers before I met the warrior priest, now I'm really cooked. I'm well done on both sides. And yet I was teaching, uh, I was going to give a talk for a, a, a recording studio in Colorado called Sounds True. And I was going to be recording one of my books, The Laws of Spirit, um, for that studio. And, and the president said, Dan, uh, as a courtesy, we're going to send you the catalog. And if you see any programs that we, we publish and that appeal to you, we'll just send them to you and, and just let us know. Well, this tell, told me that I had changed. Because as I looked through the catalog on every possible topic, personal development, meditation, enlightenment, aware relationships, I, at one point I would have been like a kid in a candy store, you know, but this time I went, mm, no, no, I don't think so. No, been there, done that. Then I came across this little modest program. It, all it was titled was Constructive Living. And it seemed so grounded. There was something about it that appealed to me wasn't metaphysical, wasn't up in the air. And it led to my reading all this fellow's books. And then he was doing a 10 day residential in residence, 24 hours a day, intensive training, which was really intense in its way, different from the Eureka training, from the professors training for 40 days. But that 10 days was transformative, very demanding. We had to solve koans and uh, uh, do assi written assignments and solve riddles and understand <laughs> wow. showing we understood this teaching which had to do with what we can and can't control in life fundamentally the man i call the sage was a, a anthropological psychologist got his phd at the same time as his, his classmate carlos castaneda at ucla and so he was a doctorate and he taught that way very rigorous um and it brought me back to earth I was up in the sky of mine with all these big concepts and ideas. 
And he just brought me back to this simple reality of everyday life. So he had a major influence in my work as did the warrior priest and all the other books after way of the peaceful warrior, um, starting with everyday enlightenment and so on. So that wow. those are the mentors <laughs> I happen to meet and help shape my life. Now people might go, well, what does that have to do with my life, Dan? Well, the subtitle of my new book is The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. And I believe we're all in a spiritual quest, whether or not we'd phrase it that way, whether or not we're fully aware of it, we're all seeking fulfillment, happiness, a sense of meaning and purpose and connection in everyday life. And so I think people, it might help illuminate the paths of others and vaccinate them in a way um, to, to making some uh, wiser choices in viewing my experiences and going with me on this journey. That's why I wrote the new book. Yeah. Well, you say in the book that this is not my story, it's your story exactly. <laughs> or our story combined. Exactly. F- final question on that piece, because I mean, thank you for sharing all that as well, because I know it is, it is in the book and we'll make sure that people can get links to that um, after we finish speaking, but sure. it's good to hear you express the the journey from your, you know, from, from the way that you've, you, ex- you experienced it really. Um, What's your, after, after sort of having those mentors and those different experiences, what's your advice to someone who, who, you know, is maybe not necessarily looking for a mentor, but has maybe closed themselves off from the idea either directly or indirectly, if you understand what I'm saying here, you know, sometimes we close ourselves, right? We, we don't open yeah. ourselves up. I found that when I've opened myself up to things that feel a little bit challenging or maybe even a bit scary, some of the greatest experiences have happened. For me personally, exactly. I'm just curious exactly. about how you've how often. You it's a bit scary. Um, yeah. Well, I would I would put it this way. Um, you know that saying everybody's heard: when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Many yes. people misunderstand that that they believe if they suffered enough, or deserving enough, or prepared well enough, a teacher like Socrates will appear in their life. But actually, when the student is ready, the teacher appears everywhere. I describe Mm. in the book how I learned a valuable lesson from watching a cloud pass through the sky. Uh, Nature has always been my primary teacher. Some of us are autodidacts. We learn on our own, but you know, nobody really learns on their own. They study, they have nature supporting them, people around them. Um, So we all have help. And whether it takes the form of us, a formal teacher or not, is not necessary. Books can be our teachers. Um, but if you want to learn tennis, it's good to have somebody who's better than you at tennis to help guide you. And same with auto mechanics or anything else. So um, there are people who have perspective and wisdom. They've done the preparation and they can be valuable to others. So we want to stay open uh, to possibilities. That's all. Thanks, man. Awesome. Very, very good. Well, listen, last final question, because I know we're um, coming up to time. Uh, what, is, what is next for Dan Millman? Well, I, I feel like this book, the new one was my culminating work. So what's yes. not next is probably writing more books. I think I'm officially <laughs> retired. That's how it feels right now. I don't know for it's sure. How many, it's 18 books. Is that right? 18 it probably... books. Yeah. Okay. It only took me 40 years to do it. So, but I, I'm going to continue uh, teaching, uh, even sharing. You've opened a, a valuable opportunity for me. I'm, this is about my 60th podcast since January. Um, but you know, this is one of the better ones. I feel like it's really, you ask excellent questions, drew out my best. And I'm really, in, in, I've enjoyed this time with you, Nick. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, help people to scale up. Um, and, and that's, that was my story. So oh, I, love I think it. Well, I'm going to continue to where I'm invited. 
No, well, you've been been very open today and it was great to, I mean, I, genuinely, you know, this book, and this book has come all the way from Australia, because right? yeah. <laughs> I bought this when I used to live in Australia. It's even got my old business card from back in the 1990s in here. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm not kidding you, right? So all of that stuff. So, I mean, I'm very, very grateful that you've come on the show today for me to firstly learn a little bit more about your story. I know it's in the book, but, but also to kind of connect with you based on the impact that this had on my life, you know, yeah. some 30 odd years ago as well. So, so Dan Millman, thank you very much. We'll make sure that the um, links to the book, The Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit are in the show notes and we'll make sure there are connections if people want to reach out to you as well. But I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been amazing. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, Click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.